don't you hate it when you're taking a test and you come across something that you know the professor never went over in class? Maybe you're in a meeting and the boss reminds you about those TPS reports he told you to finish a week ago. Well, those situations don't need to happen. I mean, come on, we're in the 21st century. Technology practically does work for us. With Sound Studio 4 for Mac, you can record those lectures or meetings and save them so that you can review them later and you'll never miss anything like that again. And also, if you're a musician or in a band, well, you can record your demos with it as well. Sound Studio 4 is a great alternative to the more expensive audio editing programs that are out there, and it makes a great gift for yourself or someone else. You can find it in the Mac App Store or at macsoundstudio.com. Ignition sequence start. Everything. Everything. Sounds. Sounds. This is Everything Sounds. I'm Craig Shank. And I'm George Drake Jr. This is Everything Sounds. In the mid-2000s, Nate DeMeo left his job at Marketplace, the popular public radio show. He left on good terms, but he had some other things he wanted to try. He knew that he was a good editor, but he wanted to be a reporter. He knew he was a good producer, but he wanted to start his own show. So he did just that. A few years later, he made the first episode of his show, The Memory Palace. The best way to describe the show is with what he said in an interview he did with Transom back in 2011. He said, I am not a historian. I cannot even claim to be a history buff, but I do love a good story. And history is, at its core, just a bunch of stories. I figured if you remembered that, if you placed an emphasis on narrative and drama and amazing facts and wonder and kept things varied and kept things moving and kept things short, you could build a general interest history show that the person tooling around on a Saturday could enjoy as much as any other weekend public radio crowd pleasers. Some episodes of The Memory Palace touch on themes and ideas that we thought you might like to hear. They include elements of sound in the natural world, music, technology, culture, and even espionage. So, with Nate's permission, we have a selection of stories from the Memory Palace that we wanted to share on Everything Sounds. I'm not sure if our explanations would really do them justice, so let's just let the pieces do the talking. From the Maximum Fun Network, this is the Memory Palace. I'm Nate DeMeo. The days beat on. The rooster would crow, and Jed Porter would slide out of bed, rub his eyes, pad out to the cold kitchen for some coffee and some breakfast. Some bread spread with something he'd grown in the summer and picked in the fall that his wife had put in a jar and placed in a shelf in the cellar to keep through the long northern winter. And he'd feed his animals as dawn hovered pink at the edge of the land. And he'd be out in the fields as morning broke bright, cutting back stiff weeds tilling the thawing ground, getting the farm ready for spring, and the planting to come, and the reaping to follow, in the jars, in the cellar, in the winter, as the days beat on. And always, as he'd wake and he'd work, and he'd slip into bed and off to sleep to do it all again the next morning, he heard the churn of the river and the roar of the falls. And one night, after midnight, Jed Porter couldn't sleep, he wasn't sure why. 
and he decided to go for a walk, and the night felt crisp and strange and changed. And then he noticed. The sound was gone. The next morning, the people who lived along the Niagara River woke to discover what Jed Porter already knew. The river had stopped running. The falls had stopped falling. And everyone started freaking out. The workers at the mills who came in to find the wheels had stopped turning. The men who rode the boats filled with tourists around the rocks through the mist at the bottom of the falls. The kids who were always told to stay away from the river lest they be swept away from their parents. Their parents, who grew up there, and had their lives scored by the rush of the river and the roar of the falls. All stood on the banks of the American side, or stood on the banks of the Canadian side, and looked at the mighty river that lay between them, and some mud and flotsam, and flopping fish gasping for water. For a day and a half, in March of 1848, the owners of the mills tried to figure out what the hell to do if the wheels didn't start turning again soon and the men who owned the boats ran to the rocks that bedeviled the rowers who made their way through the mist, and they blew them up with dynamite, and were happy to see them gone. And the parents who grew up there went to church and asked for forgiveness for whatever they'd done to make the water go away, and with it the sound that had been with them all through their lives, the sound that they'd hardly noticed was there until it was not. And the kids walked out in the mud and found flapping fish and floundering turtles and treasures, real treasures, rifles and arrows and hatchets and tomahawks from wars that ended before they were born but that they still pretended to fight for fun and found strange sticks and smooth rocks that they'd keep in a jar or on a shelf or in a drawer and treasure long after the ice that had blocked the head of the river broke free and let the Niagara flow again first as a whisper and then as a roar And they'd look to them now and then, up on the shelf, in the jar, in the drawer, as they grew up there with their lives scored by the rush of the river and the roar of the falls. And remember the day the silence came, before the river came back, and the days beat on. Now the voice of Jack Finn. No greater honor can be bestowed upon any man than the quality of the achievements he bequeathed to posterity. Marconi is dead, but his work will live forever. Guillermo Marconi is the father of radio. He didn't really invent it. He gets much more credit than he deserves, but whatever. Guillermo Marconi was the father of radio in the eyes of the world. He was a hero on a scale that Italy hadn't seen since the Renaissance. I have a postcard that I found in my grandfather's attic after he died. It has a picture of Marconi on the front and a message in Italian on the back, encouraging immigrants like my grandfather's family to express their pride in their countrymen by investing in the Marconi company. He was celebrated all over the world. He dined with presidents and kings and captains of industry and beautiful women, the whole thing. He shared a Nobel Prize. Mussolini was the best man at a second wedding, which I'm sure felt like a good idea at the time. But we're told that in his 60s, Somewhere around the time of his fourth or fifth heart attack, the inventor began to think about mortality. Or rather, he began to think about immortality. Marconi became convinced that sound never dies. That sound waves once emitted from a radio, from the vibrating strings of a Stradivarius, from whispering lovers, from a baby discovering how to make a ba or gus sound for the first time, 
Sound lived on forever, its waves flowing permanently, but growing weaker and weaker with each moment. He just hadn't built a radio powerful enough to tune in the signal. Now, this is wrong, but it wasn't entirely foolish. One of the things that had made Marconi so famous was the sinking of the Titanic. 706 people were rescued from the icy water after radio men on nearby ships heard its distress signal. Newspapers around the world credited Marconi as their savior. Now, one of those radio men working the night shift on a Russian steamer heard the signal through his headphones more than an hour and a half after it was sent. This was just a physical anomaly, atmospheric conditions or whatnot. But here was Marconi near the end of his life, growing weaker and weaker with each heart attack, dreaming of a device that would let him hear lost sounds, let him tap into these eternal frequencies. He would tell people that if he got it right, he could hear Jesus of Nazareth giving the Sermon on the Mount. But he would be able to hear everything ever said, everything he ever said. At the end of his life, he could sit in his piazza in Rome and hear everything that was ever said to him or about him. He could relive every toast and testimonial. And we all could hear everything. Hear Caesar, hear Shakespeare give an actor a line reading. Hear my grandmother introduce herself to my grandfather in a nightclub in Rhode Island. Hear someone tell you that they love you, that first time they told you they love you. Hear everything, forever. The conductor counted off a one, and a two, and a three, and a four. And the dancers hit the floor. Young, twirling couples. A boy and a girl. Her head nuzzled into his neck, his head in her hair, clinging tight, his hands in her hips, her hands in his strong shoulders, ignoring the 4-4-3 step of the foxtrot, their bodies finding their own rhythm, lost in their own world, the boy and the girl, because they had been dancing for 21 hours. Tiny lights flitted through the room, playing on the faces in the audience, bouncing off the mirror ball that hung over the dance floor. People had come to watch them dance, to stop by the Audubon Ballroom in the 168th on their way to another dance hall, to some Harlem hotspot. They lean on the railing overlooking the floor, drinking a seltzer or a near beer, sticking some homebrew from a flask, maybe some Canadian whiskey. They thought their coworker was talking out of his ass, but he really did have the hookup. They sit on the bleachers and shout cat calls and hang in theirs through the smoke-filled hall five couples still dancing in the marathon. The crowd's growing larger as the night grows longer. Because nobody wants to miss out on history. Surely some in the audience had already seen it, just a few weeks before, right there on the parquet floor of the Audubon, when Alma Cummings, a 32-year-old dance teacher, just moved to the city from Texas. Danced for 27 hours, 50 minutes on, 10 minutes off, burning through six partners on her way to a world record and to an instant celebrity that was a brand new thing and was intoxicating and inspiring and had young men and especially young women lining up at ballrooms and dance halls in New York and Houston and Erie, Pennsylvania, pretty much all over, to get numbers pinned to the backs of their shirts and see if their legs and their shoes could carry them to a cash prize in a moment different from the ones working the assembly line or driving rivets, pulling up lobster traps. Whatever. And it brought crowds to see them, to cheer them on, 
and wonder if they had it in them too. And on this night, near midnight, April 15, 1923, it brought the New York Police Department. They'd been sent to shut it down. A judge had issued an order. There was some old ordinance, something that could be stretched to cover this thing that no one had even imagined when it was written. But somebody had to look out for these kids if they wouldn't look out for themselves, risking injury, dehydration, for an outside shot at some what? I mean, come on. So some promoter could sell tickets and some cigarettes? So men could watch young women while they collapsed, while they fell? So the cops came, and the dancers slipped out the back door and into an alley in the cool night air. The guy who ran the thing had been tipped off, and he arranged for a van. And if he timed it right, they could make it to the pier during their 10-minute break. They could dance their way onto the ferry, with the attempt at the record still alive. And so in the early moments of April 16th, five young couples stepped on a boat on the Hudson to keep their dreams alive and try to make it to New Jersey, like a Bruce Springsteen song in reverse, to another ballroom to try and stay on their feet a little longer. And they danced in the cold breeze, moonlight on the river, while they still could. Because someday there'd be kids and babysitters and real jobs and bodies that failed them bad backs trick knees but not tonight they could dance all night In 1966, the United States government conscripted a kitty cat to take down the Soviet Union. There had been many cats before him. Cats as guinea pigs in experiments by the CIA's Office of Special Activities. We don't know if they gave this specific cat a name, so I will. I'll call him Peanut. The Office of Special Activities spent the 60s mining the frontiers of science for any strategic advantage in the Cold War. They spent millions of taxpayer dollars entirely off the books inventing spy planes and satellites, developing interrogation techniques that use sleep deprivation and hypnosis and hallucinogens. The Soviet Union had a compound in Washington, D.C. Simply bugging it wasn't enough. The Soviets just assumed their phones would be tapped. They knew there were microphones in the light fixtures behind the wallpaper or wherever. They did the same to the Americans in Moscow. It was just how the game was played. So when people needed to have a top-secret conversation, they'd do what they do in spy movies. They'd go outside in a public place and talk quietly. It worked. All the high-tech James Bond stuff could be thwarted just by stepping out and getting some air. Now, no spy or would-be double agent worth his salt would talk all top secret with potential spooks with an earshot. And that's where Peanut the Cat came in. For years, the Office of Special Activities tried to develop a team of spy cats. They wanted to train them to walk up to whispering communists and eavesdrop. I mean, the cats would have microphones on them somewhere. They were scientists, not like witches. But the idea was that no one ever suspects spy cats. It just had to work. But these were cats. You can't get a cat to sit or roll over or even care that you're going away for three weeks. Never mind serve as the tip of the spear in a major espionage operation. And so, in a time before PETA, the United States government took live cats and stuffed them with wires 
After years of research and more than $15 million, the project had progressed such that by the time they got their hands on Peanut, they were able to send out little electrical impulses. These couldn't control them exactly, but they could get Peanut to go vaguely where they wanted him to. They turned his tail into an antenna. They sewed a microphone under his skin. And they ran tests. And the tests worked. The mission was on. On a weekday afternoon in 1966, several CIA agents and one cat climbed into a van. They drove into the district from headquarters in Langley. They parked near the Soviet consulate, around the corner from a park where men would stand close and smoke cigarettes and conspire. The agents sat in the van and put on their headphones. They ran tests on their transmitters, checked and rechecked signals and levels, went over the mission one last time. And when they were sure that everything was working, that all systems were go, one of the agents cracked open the door and set Peanut down on the sidewalk. And as he closed the door and put on his own headphones, he must have been excited. After years of watching Soviet secrets being shared with impunity in broad daylight, they were finally going to hear them. They had cracked it. $15 million in several years well spent. And the men in the van sat and listened. As Peanut the cat started off on his mission, as he stepped into the street and got hit by a cab and died, In 1994, maybe it was 95, I was in a band, and it wasn't very good. And that was largely my fault. And we were playing a show in a living room in Santa Cruz, California. It was all very punk rock. And the first band was playing while I paced around in the hallway, nervous, because I knew my mediocre drumming was what kept us from being a good band. In the opening act playing in the living room were two women, and a guitar and a snare. It was all very punk rock. And while I was out there in the hallway, they played a song that just killed me. It was simple and confessional, and their voices were lovely. I bought a tape from them afterward. And a few days later, the tape deck in my car ate it, the way that tape decks in your car used to do. And I lost the song. And I looked for it for years, in every record store. And I never found it. And then I forgot about it. But the other day, I was tooling around on my computer, and I googled it. And there it was the same exact version, uploaded from the cassette. It took all of a minute and a half. And then I was, for a moment, in the living room on Galt Street. And I could see the punk rock kids sitting on the floor like it was story time at the library. I could see the friends I had wished I'd kept in touch with, and the ones I was better off without. All because of the sound of a snare, and a guitar, and the voices of two 19-year-old girls. Now, I know this is a whole lot of preamble, but there's a point, and it's a simple one, but it is one that kills me. Before the advent of recorded sound, you heard something once, and that was it. You heard a song. Maybe you could buy the sheet music. Maybe you could pick out the tune on your banjo or the piano in your parlor, and maybe you could conjure up some sort of approximation. But you heard something once, and that was it. There are no existing recordings of Jenny Lind. She died in 1887 at 67 years old. 
just after the first recording devices were invented. There's some evidence that she sang for Edison in his studio right before her death, but the recording is lost if she did. And it does seem that we're missing out. People who know these things tell us that Jenny Lind was the greatest singer of the 19th century, the greatest white singer in the white Western canon. People said she sounded like an angel, or silver, or spun silk, or like a bird perched high on a thin branch, or a nightingale. People today, historians, opera buffs, whomever, sometimes call her the first rock star, but I won't. A rock star is someone you can hold in your hands and lie on the floor with when you put on your stereo with your headphones on. Someone you can watch over and over on Ed Sullivan or NTV or on YouTube or Vimeo. Jenny Lind wasn't a rock star. She was a firefly. She would flicker for a moment and then vanish and be gone. And such was the desire to see her glow that she sold out concerts at the biggest opera houses night after night for months on end, year after year. And in 1849, this success caught the eye of a man who said he had no ear for music. P.T. Barnum came to London and made Jenny Lind an offer. He would pay her $170,000 if she would come to America and perform 170 shows. And that was a fortune at the time. He had never actually heard her sing. He didn't care because he knew she could sell tickets. Jenny Lind arrived in New York on the 1st of September the following year. 40,000 people lined the docks to greet a singer they had never heard sing. Tickets to her first set of American concerts were sold by auction. The cheapest seats went for about 250 bucks, meaning that it cost roughly the average middle-class income in America at that time just to get in the building. But the wealthy of the New World happily shelled out for the chance to hear, just once, the reigning voice of the Old World. And in lieu of a CD, or a box set, or a download, or an uploaded cell phone video, or a cassette sold out of the back of a car after a show, they bought tchotchkes, Jenny Lind curios, Jenny Lind waistcoat buttons, Jenny Lind porcelain dolls, handkerchiefs, gravy boats, anything that could remind them of what they heard once. And the people outside the theaters, the people who couldn't afford to get in, were swept up too. P.T. Barnum made sure of that. He played the press, feeding them true stories of Lynn's charity and chastity and religious piety. In America loved their superstars, chaste and pious. Even then. Jenny Lynn sailed back to England two years later, with more than $350,000 to show for her efforts. She arrived in London a conquering hero. Her first return engagement was a concert for the Queen who had spent two years aching to hear her again. All told, Jenny Lynn performed 93 times in North America on that tour. But there's one specific concert I want to leave you with. There were only so many cities a Swedish opera star could play in America in 1850. There were only so many appropriate venues. There were only so many well-heeled music aficionados. There were only so many cities. And it was hard to get from one to the other. So Jenny Lind and P.T. Barnum and her orchestra and entourage 
sailed from South Carolina to the Gulf of Mexico, stopping off for shows in Havana, before settling in for a 13-night run in the grand new concert hall in New Orleans, Louisiana. Now, the closest major city was Memphis, 400 miles up the muddy Mississippi, several days' journey by riverboat, several days during which P.T. Barnum wouldn't make a dime unless he found somewhere else for her to perform. On a warm winter's night in 1851, a few hundred people crowded into a Methodist church that sat high on a hill above the river in Natchez, Mississippi. The town's few wealthy citizens, the plantation owners, sat in the pews, dressed up for a night at the opera, which was a type of night that most of them had never had before, and that none of them could have ever expected to have right there in the Delta. And in the last rows, and standing in the back, and squeezed onto benches up in the rafters, were the shop owners, and the men who ran the docks, and the women who hung linen, many of them European immigrants, whose lives had somehow led them here to the middle of nowhere, far from home, and the music and the sounds they'd left behind. And for an hour, once, Jenny Lind, accompanied by a single piano, because there was nowhere for the orchestra to sit inside the small church, sang songs some of them hadn't heard since they'd left home, and others had never heard before, and that all of them would likely never hear again. Jenny Lynn sang, and then she was gone. Thanks to Nate DeMeo of the Memory Palace for allowing us to share his work with you on the show. The Memory Palace is a part of the Maximum Fun Network, and you can find out more about the show or Max Fun at thememorypalace.us or maximumfun.org. We have links to all of the pieces that you heard on this show at everythingsounds.org. If you liked the pieces you heard, be sure to let him know. He's very open about how much he loves getting emails. His email address is nate at thememorypalace.us. And also write some reviews for Nate and Everything Sounds in iTunes. Those ratings really help shows move up in the iTunes rankings, and ultimately, they reach more people. Today's episode was sponsored by Sound Studio 4. Sound Studio 4 for Mac lets you record audio, create podcasts, digitize your tapes and records, and create sound effects for your own projects. Information on all of the features at MacSoundStudio.com or in the Mac App Store. Again, that's Sound Studio 4 for Mac. Everything Sounds is a part of the Mule Radio Syndicate, which just added new shows such as the Big Web Show, All Mod Cons, and this is actually happening to their lineup. You can find the full list of shows at muleradio.net. Thanks for listening to Everything Sounds. I'm Craig Shank. And I'm George Drake Jr. 